Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So the H and H bomb stands for hurricane. Who knew? John Berman here in for Anderson and the reporting in Axios that President Trump has asked his aides on several occasions about the possibility of using nuclear explosions to stop hurricanes was, in some ways, the least remarkable piece of news to emerge from the G7 summit on the coast of France, which wrapped up earlier today. Kind of like trying to buy Greenland, then canceling a state visit to the ally that told you it was not for sale, which happened. It is legitimately outlandish, but so much so it ironically barely registers because to take it too seriously would be just too mind-blowing. So you move on. You play past it. Tonight, though, there is far more from that summit that cannot be brushed aside so easily because it concerns legitimately serious stuff and because of what it says or continues to say about the president. It all came out today in a series of press encounters that saw the president make news on many fronts, and we'll explore all of them tonight. First, though, to set the stage, when we left you on Friday, the president had just departed for France, having sent Wall Street tumbling by leveling new tariff threats against China. Then he suggested he might have regrets about that. Then his staff said, no, his only regret was not being tougher. And then this morning he got less tough. Confusion aside, on China at least, the situation has not devolved in the last few days, as far as we can tell. The two countries are apparently still talking, though, as you will see, the question of who precisely is doing the talking and at what level remains in dispute. Here's the president this morning. Well, we've had many calls. Uh, or, Secretary Mnuchin is here, and you've had many calls over the last 24 hours, but certainly over the last 48 hours. Uh, we've had many calls, not just one. This isn't one. And these are high-level calls. They want to make a deal. And by the way, I think a deal is going to be made. But they want to make a deal. So the, the Chinese are saying that there weren't any particular The Chinese are not calls, saying that. But there were phone calls, sir, Mr. President. There were Numerous calls. Again, the Chinese foreign ministry said they were not aware of any specific calls in their briefing this morning. And Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said there had only been, quote, communication and would not, when pressed directly, even say there had been any phone call, let alone many high-level calls, raising questions about whether the president embellished his account. He did, however, no question, clearly embellish this. First lady has gotten to know Kim Jong-un, and I think she'd agree with me. He is uh, a man with a country that has tremendous potential. In point of fact, she has never met the North Korean dictator, ever. A spokesperson later said that because the president confides in the first lady so much, he feels that she has come to know Kim, too. As for other dictators whom the first lady has met, the president once again took the dictator's side of things. Here's some of what he said about Vladimir Putin and Russia which was kicked out of what was then the G8 for annexing Crimea. Listen to how he explains what Russia did as he argues the case to invite Putin back. They should be in. Uh, they were, really, it was a President Obama. I'm not blaming him, but a lot of bad things happened with 
President Putin and President Obama. One of the things that happened was, as you know, what happened in with a very big area, a very, very big and important area in the Middle East where the red line was drawn and then President Obama decided that he was not going to do anything about it. You can't draw red lines in the sand. You just can't do it. And the other was in Ukraine having to do with a certain section of Ukraine that you know very well, where it was sort of taken away from President Obama. Not taken away from President Trump, taken away from President Obama. Keeping them honest, not even Vladimir Putin has put it that way. And just to make it perfectly clear, he didn't take Crimea away from any U.S. president. He took it away from Ukraine and was penalized by the G7, including the United States. Those are simply facts which the president disregards in favor of the story he's telling the world. President Obama was not happy that this happened because it was embarrassing to him, right? It was very embarrassing to him. And he wanted Russia to be out of the, what was called the G8. And that was his determination. He was outsmarted by Putin. He was outsmarted. President Putin outsmarted President Obama. Wait a minute. And I can understand how President Obama would feel. He wasn't happy. And they're not in for that reason. Again, that is factually untrue, as was this. Mr. President, were you able to attend the working session on climate and oceans earlier? Uh, We're having it in a little while. In point of fact, by the time the president said that, the meeting had already taken place, as you heard. His press secretary explaining it by saying, quote, the president had scheduled meetings and bilaterals with Germany and India, so a senior member went instead. And you should believe her and not your lying eyes or this lying video, which clearly shows the leaders of India and Germany, you know, the ones the president was supposed to be meeting with, in the meeting that he skipped And right there is the empty spot at the table set aside for him. Not that he needs to hear lectures on the environment, because as he says, no one knows more about it than him. And I'm an environmentalist. A lot of people don't understand that. I have done more environmental impact statements probably than anybody that's, I guess I can say definitely, because I've done many, many, many of them. More than anybody that's ever been president or vice president or anything even close to president. And I think I know more about the environment than most people. Keeping them honest, filing environmental impact statements does not make you an expert on the environment. It makes you a potential polluter who has to show authorities how you plan to build something without hurting the environment. Something like a golf course, or as the president sees it, the site of next year's summit. It's close to the, uh, we haven't made a final decision, but it's right next to the airport, right, right there, meaning you know, a few minutes away. It's, uh, it's a great place. It's got tremendous uh, acreage, uh, many hundreds of acres. So we can handle whatever happens. It's really, people are really liking it. Plus it has buildings that have 50 to 70 units in them. So each delegation can have its own, its own building. So you'd have the seven uh, various delegations that could have their own building. So a lot of, and they could have buildings for the press. We have, it's very big, great conference facilities. So we're thinking about it. They love the location of the hotel, and they also like the fact that it's right next to the airport for convenience. Wow, from the sound of that, you'd almost think the president was back in private life plugging one of his properties. And you'd be right. He is the Trump National Doral Country Club. His Trump National Doral Country Club. Somehow, of all the summit locations in the entire country, 
The single best one is the one the president and his family own. The one that hasn't been doing so well lately and could really use a boost. After all, it's got tremendous acreage, like, you know, Camp David. It's close to an airport, you know, like Washington, New York, Chicago, Des Moines, or St. Louis. And get this, it's got a hotel. I mean, how does that happen? A hotel and an airport nearby, too. Not that the president is concerned, as his own aides have reportedly been, that in addition to appearing to be a massive conflict of interest, it actually would be one. But he says he's the one making the sacrifice. Well, I'll tell you what, I've spent, and I think I will, in a combination of uh, uh, loss and opportunity, probably it'll cost me anywhere from three to five billion dollars to be president. And the only thing I care about is this country. Couldn't care less, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. People have asked me, what do you think it costs? And between opportunity, not doing things, I used to get a lot of money to make speeches. Now I give speeches all the time. You know what I get? Zippo. Zippo, nothing. And on top of that, Doral is in hurricane country. Then again, it's nothing that a few nukes couldn't handle. Plenty to talk about. Joining us, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, who served as State and Defense Department spokesperson during the Obama administration. Also former Republican presidential candidate and U.S. Senator Rick Santorum. He's currently a CNN senior political commentator. And Kirsten Powers, CNN political analyst and columnist for USA Today. Admiral, I want to start with you. You've been on trips like this before. I'm just curious, what does the world, what do world leaders take away when they see the president do this? The string of falsehoods, the fanciful statements that drift off into the oblivion. What's the takeaway for these leaders? Uh, my guess is, and certainly the foreign diplomats I've talked to, that they, they, it just reinforces for them uh, a view that they have now come to have over the last couple of years that, that he can't really be relied upon, his word and our word as a country can't be relied upon, and that the American leadership um, is also cannot be relied upon in the world. And quite frankly, they are working around President Trump. They are working around the United States. You saw that play out uh, to a fairly well here at this G7. Kirsten, um, to me, The small lies are almost inexplicable than the big lies. Why say that your wife has, you know, come to know Kim Jong-un and and grow fond of him when the two have never met? Um, I'm inclined to ask you why he does that, but how could you know? I guess what's the the (laughs) impact of that, though? What does it tell you that he does that? Well, I mean, I don't. The question is, does he does he think that she's met him? I mean, that's what comes to my mind. I don't know. Is it something that's necessarily a lie or is he confused and he believes that that happened, even though that's something that's so momentous that it seems like you would remember that? I, I, I think the biggest problem with this is it's an embarrassment to the United States. I mean, watching that press conference, um, you know, as John Kirby was just talking about, I mean, the other leaders are looking at this and seeing this and um, they can't possibly take it seriously. And I, and I, and I would assume that it is a, a lot causes them a lot of concern because the United States, of course, has always been a country that has had a very important role in, in terms of leadership in the world. Yeah, Senator Santorum, there are big, portentous things at stake right now around the world and, and perhaps Number one on that list is this trade war that the president is in with China. Do you have any question from Friday to today, from Friday when he threatened increased tariffs, from Friday when he called 
uh, you know, President Xi, uh, you know, the enemy of the United States to today, where he seemed to be looking for a way to de-escalate and pull back. Do you think the president is backing off? Well, I think the president's responding to the Chinese vice premier who said that, you know, they want to end, end this trade dispute. They don't want escalation. They want to calm that's what the resolution. That's what China so, always says. That's standard language, though. Well, but I think China. the president's trying to, you know, respond to that. I, look, I think the president's done, uh, I, I believe, a very good job in getting China uh, to, uh, to, to the table here. I mean, this, this is, as I've said many times, you know, lots of administrations have had the opportunity to take on China and Republicans and Democrats for, for decades have known that China is infiltrating, is stealing our technology uh, through espionage. All the, I mean, this, they are bad actors on the stage. And I, I don't blame President Obama. He had a recession he had to deal with. I don't blame President Bush. He had a war he had to deal with. But you go back uh, the President Clinton, he had opportunities in a great economy to take on China and didn't do it. Now the president has a good economy and this is the right time to take on China. Is it going to have an impact on, on the U.S. economy? Probably some. But there's no better time when you have record record unemployment, uh, when you have uh, when you have you know record growth, that this is the time to take a little hit and try to win the long-term game. And the president is doing that, and I give him high marks for trying. I, I don't think anyone is arguing that China is a bad actor. I think the discussion is whether the president's methods are the most effective way to move him, move China off of that, and also who's paying for it. Kirsten, you wanted to get in there. No, I, I mean, I, I just, I, I think the question is, look, if it worked, I think, I don't know anybody who wouldn't support it, right? China obviously is a problem. It's been a problem for a long time. And I, I think the Clinton administration actually did, did do a lot of things to challenge China, but it, it's a very tough nut to crack. And so I, I think the question is, how is this going to make things better? And I think that the impact on the economy, potentially putting us into a recession, is a, is a pretty steep price to pay. Uh, I, think that, I think it's overstating the case. I don't think we're anywhere near uh, a recession. I think this economy is still very, very strong. We had, mm-hmm. you know, almost you know, three over three percent growth. Mm-hmm. If it knocks it down to two percent, we're just back to where uh, President Obama was for eight years. So let's let's just look at the reality that the president is doing something maybe untraditional. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand well, people don't like some of the tactics, but he, he is he is outwardly fighting the Chinese. And I think we'll wait and see whether we can get that agreement, that 150 page agreement back on the table with real teeth to stop China from doing the, the results are what matter here. And so far, there haven't been any. Admiral Kirby, one of the things the president said today when asked directly about the fact you call Xi an enemy on Monday and today he's a great friend. Um, he's like, that's just the way I negotiate. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I, I don't know anything about uh, negotiating trade deals, but it is it, it, this is the, the whiplash effect, I think, and what's making uh, the market so uncertain and unsteady. And it also, it's, frankly, it's, it's worrying our allies and partners. Look, I think, you know, back to what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, I, I agree that President Trump and the administration have been tougher on China, militarily speaking, too. I'm, I'm, I applaud what they've done in the South mm-hmm. China Sea to do these freedom of navigation uh, operations. I think... He would have found a, a very welcome audience to some of these ideas at the G7 if he had taken the opportunity, but he didn't do that. I mean, he almost went to, to, to France with no agenda at all and sort of let Macron and the rest of them run it. He actually could have, I think, gotten some solidarity behind some of the things that he's trying to do. Yes, they're worried about uh, the trade war and where it's going and the tariffs, and, and I understand that. But there are other things with respect to China that the Europeans agree with him on about intellectual mm-hmm. property theft, about cyberspace and about the South China Sea. And I think 
he he really missed an opportunity uh, to sort of broaden this discussion about China yeah. with with allies and partners that I think would have been s- sympathetic to some of those moves. Admiral, as everyone departs or has departed the G7 summit, do you think Emmanuel Macron is just breathing a sigh of relief? Glad it's over. Yeah, I think I think not only is he breathing a sigh of relief, I think he's probably patting himself on the back. I think he handled President Trump masterfully in this. He pulled him away from all the advisors and had a private lunch. You know, he he deferred to him about bringing Zarif into the uh, into the discussion. And I think when it comes to Iran, he actually got President Trump today to say that he's still willing to meet with Rouhani and to uh, issue any idea of regime change in Tehran. So I think, especially on Iran, Macron should be should be commended about what he got uh, President Trump. To sign up to. All right, Admiral, Admiral Kirby, thank you very much. Senator and Kirsten, stick around. We've got much more for you. I want to re- drill down deeper into the question of holding the next G7 at the president's golf course. George W. Bush's top ethics lawyer joins us for that. And later, new polling paints a whole new picture in the Democratic presidential race and could be a warning sign for Joe Biden and a boost for Elizabeth Warren. We're talking tonight about President Trump's trip to the G7 summit and his tentative plans to hold the next one at his Florida Country Club, which he said today wasn't really his idea at all. And when my people came back, they took tours. They went to different places. I won't mention places, but you'll have a list because they're going to give a presentation on it fairly soon. They went to places all over the country. And they came back and they said, this is where we'd like to be. Now, we had military people doing it. We had Secret Service people doing it. We had people that really understand what it's about. It's not about me. It's about getting the right location. I think it's very important. Back with Rick Santorum and Kirsten Powers. And joining us is Richard Painter, top White House ethics lawyer in the George W. Bush administration. He currently teaches at the University of Minnesota. And Richard, I want to start with you. You think the president hosting the G7 at his own resort would be illegal and violate the emoluments clause. Explain why you think that. Well, the emoluments clause of the Constitution prohibits anyone holding a position of trust with the United States government from accepting any profits and benefits from foreign governments. And two federal district courts have interpreted the emoluments clause in cases brought against Donald Trump to prohibit exactly this type of thing. Those cases were later dismissed because the plaintiffs uh, were ruled not to have standing. But the interpretation of the Monuments Clause stands. This would be illegal if he takes any money for hotel rooms, for food, for beverages, for golfing or anything else. It would be a clear violation of the United States Constitution. Second, he's using his uh, uh, presidency to promote his own businesses. That's a conflict of interest entirely apart from the Monuments Clause of the Constitution. And the third problem here is that this is a president who's shown no interest in the key topics of the G7 meeting, including climate change. He's not even willing to attend the meetings, although he touts himself as an environmentalist because he's filled out environmental impact statements for golf courses. But he doesn't even want to bother to show up for serious discussion, but just wants to use this to tout his business. It's an embarrassment for the United States uh, that this is going on. So, Senator Santorum, aside from the legalities... What about just being swampy? Well, I I don't agree with the third point uh, that was just made, but uh, I think the first two points are legitimate points. I mean, the the fact is that the president should not be doing this. He shouldn't. It it would be a violation of the law as far as as far as I understand it. 
Uh, I, I hope that this is the last time he mentions it. I hope that uh, if anybody who did suggest to him, I, I mean, it's just remarkable that someone would that suggest that, that it would be held at, at his at, at, at Doral. Uh, I mean, again, uh, I hope that's not true. And if it is true, I hope they put an end to it very quickly. Rick, if you had been working in the White House, at one point you were rumored to be a possible chief of staff. I know it never happened. But if someone had come to you, a White House staffer or the president himself and said, hey, let's hold the G7 at Doral. Hell no. Hell no. What does it tell you then that the president is entertaining this? I, look, I, I, I think this is, uh, you know, the, the, there's good and bad. It comes with everybody. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that I, that I sort of scratch my head and wonder why the president doesn't see the obvious, not just conflict of interest, but, but how it could be used by his political opponents to... Um, to undermine some of the good things that he's trying to accomplish there. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm disappointed that, that he even brought it up, and uh, I hope it's the last we hear of it. I, I don't think, Kirsten, it's going to be the last we hear of it. I can almost guarantee it's not the last we hear of it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I find it a little hard to believe that some Secret Service people came up with this idea. I, I think the president probably came up with the idea. And it's, to your point, even if it was completely legal, completely on the up and up, uh, it would be inappropriate. It would be very swampy. You are not, you are supposed to, as president, always be completely ab- above reproach and, and you shouldn't be trying to financially benefit from a meeting, an official meeting of the United States. Um, Richard, how is this different? Just so people under, can understand this and understand the distinctions here, George W. Bush hosted world leaders at Crawford. Different presidents have hosted people at their homes. What makes this different? He's making money off it. Uh, George W. Bush didn't charge uh, rent uh, to uh, foreign governments at Crawford. Uh, if Donald Trump wants to comp everybody and invite them in free of charge, give them rooms and drinks and uh, food and golf and whatever entertainment he provides, assuming it's legal, I guess that wouldn't violate the Monuments Clause. It'd create a lot of other problems because it's still promoting a for-profit business. Uh, but at this point, what we hear is that they want to use uh, the facility uh, as a commercial facility and presumably have the foreign governments pay for it. That's a direct violation of the Monuments Clause. It has nothing to do with presidents inviting uh, foreign leaders to their own homes, uh, whether it be cut at Bunkport or Crawford or the Hyannis compound for the Kennedy family. He's curious, and I've covered a lot of campaigns, and there's one thing that has a bipartisan impact in any campaign or with either party, and that's when a candidate has the stink of corruption or has the stink of trying to pad his or her own pocket. It just hurts a candidate no matter what party it's in. I'm curious if the Democrats should be more focused on this aspect of President Trump than other things that they're focused on. I'm sure they, it'll be one of the many things that they focus on, but I think that people have, I mean, I don't think this is a secret, that this is who Donald mm. Trump is, that, that so much of what he does is constantly with an eye towards, uh, you know, making money, uh, if he can figure out a way to, you know, profit him, you know, his family can profit off the presidency now or in the future. I think a lot of the things he does uh, in terms of his relation, very bizarre relationships with uh, various world leaders have a lot to do with mm. his 
interest in, uh, in business, future business interests. So I, I think it certainly is something that they should focus on. I don't think it's going to be a centerpiece, but it's obviously something that's, yeah, that's highly problematic. The reality is that the president mentioned, I mean, the reality, look, Doral's not doing well. Why? Because a lot of people don't like Donald Trump, mm-hmm. particularly in the corporate world, and they're, and they're not, they're not mm-hmm. using his facilities. And so I think the president's paid a price. I mean, I think that's a story to be told, too. But but he doesn't do himself any good by by doing things like this. And uh, like I said, please, Mr. President, stop. Well, what does please. it tell you about his priorities, though, Rick, that he can't stop? Well, I mean, look, I just think he's a promoter and that's what he does. And and I, I don't I think that's just who he is. And and, and I, I it's, it's inappropriate. He shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think that this president I, I disagree with Kirsten. I don't think he's here to make money off the presidency. I, and, and I think he's losing money. And uh, and and as well, he should. I mean, it's an important job mm-hmm. and he should focus on. It. I think he does. By the way, the White House in the Trump yeah, organization the hasn't lose- furnished proof about losing money. But go ahead, Kirsten. Oh, but the reason, if he is losing money, it's his own fault, right? I mean, you don't, you don't lose money just because you're the president. You lose money because you say th- racist things, for example, or you, you know, accuse all J- Jews who vote for Democrats for being disloyal, for example. I mean, these are the kinds of things that he alienates mm-hmm. people with. And so, uh, you know, he, he, it's not a foregone conclusion mm-hmm. that being president would necessarily harm your business. All right, Rick, we're going to have no. to go. We, okay. we'll, we'll take it up during the break. Rick Santorum, <laughs> Kirsten Powers, Richard Painter, thank you for being with us. I do want to tell you uh, that President Trump has just landed in the United States back at Joint Base Andrews. There is Air Force One there. He will deplane momentarily, uh, not impossible that he would speak to cameras uh, uh, upon leaving the plane shortly. It doesn't happen often, but who knows with the way this trip has been going. So we're going to keep our eye on that over the next few minutes. Next, Joe Biden takes a hit at the polls. Elizabeth Warren gets a boost. New numbers in a conversation about what they mean when 360 continues. Senator Bernie Sanders was in Pittsburgh today where he picked up a key union endorsement. He also got a boost in new polling from Monmouth University. It showed him in a three-way tie with Senator Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden, with a former vice president down 13 points since last the last Monmouth survey. That said, an average of several other recent polls show that former Vice President Joe Biden is in a much better position. And again, these are national polls we're talking about in the primary campaign, of course, goes state by state. Still, the movement does bear a closer look. Joining us for that, Van Jones, former senior Obama White House advisor and host of CNN's Van Jones Show. And Van, with all the disclaimers, including that this poll has a margin of error of 6%, which is actually quite a bit, if you're part of the Joe Biden campaign and you've based this election on electability, how concerned are you that there's this poll out today which doesn't show you winning, which is supposed to be his thing? Listen, this is not a good uh, this is not a good poll for for Biden. And I do think that it speaks. You have to look at all the other polls, all, all that sort of stuff. But it, listen, first of all, look at the strength of the progressive block. Uh, you know, when you put uh, Sanders and Warren together, I mean, that's almost half the party uh, going for candidates that are extremely, extremely progressive. Uh, this kind of cuts against the idea uh, that the only thing that matters is electability. People may be recalculating what makes someone electable. I think the traditional wisdom has been you're electable if you're more appealing to moderates, if you can kind of get the independence. Uh, that, was, that narrative was really carrying Biden along. I think now you're starting to see people make the case it's going to be somebody who can, uh, you're electable if you can electrify, that you've got to be able to, to rally up uh, the base and you've got to be able to bring new people in, young people in, give them some, a reason to come to the polls. 
And under that rationale, suddenly an Elizabeth Warren looks very attractive. Certainly, uh, certainly a, a, a Bernie is able to hang on. If I were in the Biden camp, I would be very concerned about the fact that uh, right now he's holding his own in the top three against a whole bunch of other people. But look at that progressive block. Let's talk about Elizabeth Warren for a second here, because there's been a focus on the crowds. Now, crowd size is often controversial when you're covering elections because it doesn't always mean that the person is generating tons and tons of support. But she had 12,000 at a rally, some 15,000, I think, at a rally uh, in Seattle. A lot of people are showing up to Elizabeth Warren events. And you combine that with the strong showing in this poll and other polls, which have shown her consistently inching up. What does that tell you about the Warren campaign? Listen, she's she's the most impressive person on the scene right now, because you got to remember, she was written off for dead. She slipped on the Pocahontas banana peel four or five different times. She couldn't figure out a way to shake it off. Uh, she's, you know, released her DNA stuff that made it worse. People were not talking about Elizabeth Warren six or seven months ago. And yet she somehow has been able to claw her way back, climb her way back. And people are excited about Elizabeth Warren. Listen, The Rock, no, no less than The Rock on the season premiere of Ballers was reading an Elizabeth Warren book. Now, this is, you know, that gives you a sense of how far she's broken through into the culture. They were tweeting back and forth. Listen, she is making inroads everywhere. She's not making a bunch of enemies. She's not making mistakes. Uh, She's really, really doing something extraordinary right now. The Warren Sanders, you called it a block. Now, I I happen to think that their coalitions don't line up exactly one-to-one. I think that Bernie Sanders does better about non-college white men. She does better with college-educated white women, and there's not a one-for-one lineup there. But how long do you think they can survive this mutual non-aggression pact that they have right now? Um, Look, I I don't know. It can't last forever. Um, So far, they're benefiting from uh, from each other because they are they're stretching out the 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 window of ideas. They're stretching that Overton window where ideas that were completely off the table even four years ago, even six years ago, are now firmly considered mainstream ideas in the Democratic Party. They've both been pulling on that end of the rope together. But at a certain point, they're going to have to turn around and square off with each other. But right now, they're doing all of that to the detriment of all the moderates. The moderates are having to, to, to divide the pie up while Biden holds on to a big chunk. The rest of them are way down there in the single digits. Now, listen, you do see some uh, movement from uh, uh, Cory Booker starting to cry, mm-hmm. climb and creep a little bit there. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, but everything else, I mean, it looks like Elizabeth Warren, it's, it's, it's the summer of Elizabeth Warren. That's what you got to call it. And last question, Van, this next debate, and the cutoff for the next debate, I think it's tomorrow, actually, we'll have just 10 candidates. Do you think that's where the race is now, or are there really even fewer at this point that have a legitimate shot? Look, I think we all know it's probably down to four or five. I mean, you know, somebody could do something interesting, but right now I think you're looking at those top three, those top four. Something amazing would have to happen to change that. Van Jones, great to have you. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Glad to be here. We're going to switch sides. A new Republican candidate wants to unseat President Trump, yet at one time he supported him, and he has a long history of racially charged comments himself. I'm going to speak with former Congressman Joe Walsh next. Despite President Trump's high approval among Republicans, he is facing a new challenger for the 2020 nomination. Conservative radio host and former one-term Tea Party congressman Joe Walsh is the second Republican to say he will run against the president. Now, Walsh certainly drew controversy with remarks about African-Americans and false claims about President Obama. 
Among his notable tweets over the years, this one from just last year that reads in part, quote, I have a right to call Obama a Muslim. Months later, he wrote, quote, Obama got elected because he's black, not because he accomplished anything significant. And in 2017, there's this part of a tweet, I have a right to say blacks are lazy. Joining us now is Republican presidential candidate Joe Walsh. Congressman, thanks for being with us. And we've had a chance to talk a lot over the last two weeks. Good to be with you. And you've apologized for these past statements, which is notable. I I do want to ask you this question, though. Given that you've apologized, why do you think people should overlook your past incendiary rhetoric and not the president's? Well, and again, John, just some context here. So probably in the last six years, I've tweeted 40,000 times. There are probably a few hundred tweets that you and I would scratch our heads about. I don't apologize for every tweet. When it's warranted, I will. Those tweets that you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a big free speech supporter and I abhor political correctness. So I'll say things like, you know what, I should have a right to say that white people are this or Christians are this. Uh, I'm a pretty equal opportunity offender when it comes to free speech. But to your broader point, no, everything I've tweeted, I own. And if there's a tweet that I need to apologize for, John, I will. I'll own it and regret it. You, You said today, one of the things you said today is you've tweeted racist things in the past, but you don't think it makes you a racist? No, I think, John, I think I think we're all a little bit racist. We've all said racist things. I'll bet if you and I went through everybody's Twitter feed, we're going to find things that are objectionable and offensive. I think we all have. I know when I look back at some of my tweets over the years, because I was so outspoken, yeah, I've tweeted some racist things. On purpose, no. Blacks are lazy. But no, I mean, no, 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 no. That's But John... I didn't say that because I meant it. Uh, whites are privileged. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I use that as an example, and I've used that mm-hmm. as an example with any racial group. I don't believe that. The point I was making, mm-hmm. in America, you should have a right to say anything. You know, Kurt Vonnegut wrote, um, you are what you pretend to be, so be careful what you pretend to be. I get the distinction you're trying to make there, but I think some people may look at it and say it's too cute. That said, yeah. You've apologized and explained that you are where you are sitting here running for president tonight. We looked at your campaign website for policy positions right now, and there's not much up there, if anything, about policy right now. So policy wise, how would you be different than President Trump? (laughs) It's a great question, because understand, remember, I'm running against Trump because he's morally unfit period. It's about Trump. It's not about the issues. It's about Trump. But on the issues, I believe in a wall. Trump hasn't built a wall. I believe in border security. Trump has botched the border. The border's a bigger mess now than it was when You're he got elected. You're to the right of the president on immigration. If you want to call that to the right. But again, I don't believe Trump is anywhere to the left or right. Trump is only about Trump. Um, I, I went to Washington 10 years ago to do something about the debt and the deficits. This president is increasing the debt more than Obama did. Would you back off his tax cut? Well, yes, that was a horrible tax cut. I would have probably, I I believe in cutting taxes. That was a bad tax cut. I would have given a middle class payroll tax cut. Tariffs are horrible policies. Uh, Americans, farmers, everybody's being hurt by this tariff war right now. I could go on. But yes, I I, I believe in limited government and balanced budgets. That's not what this guy is. So you've been in the race for 24 hours? Not even, but 36 hours? Uh, I know it it feels like a long time. Yeah. What's the impact? And I've been curious about this because you're a conservative radio talk show host. And I have a hard time believing that your audience will will Mm. like the idea that you're running against the president. So what has the impact been on your radio show? Um, 
80 to 90 percent of my audience supports the president. I just found out that I lost my national radio show. So so that's gone. But I figured that might happen, John. You lost it. Why? Uh, I don't know why. I just got a notice before I came in the studio. Um, I'm running for president. I oppose this president. Most of my listeners support the president. It's not an easy thing to do to be in conservative talk radio and oppose this president. I, I knew that, John, when I made the announcement tomorrow, yesterday that it could be in jeopardy. Hmm. So no more radio show at all for you? No more radio show, but that's okay. I'm going to campaign full time because, again, this president is more. John, this was a difficult thing to do. Yes, but I believe it's urgent because this president is a danger. We cannot let him get elected for another four years. Joe Walsh, thank you for coming in tonight. Thanks, we appreciate the conversation. It. Thank you. All right. Up next, a, a landmark ruling. A judge finds a major company responsible for one state, state's opioid crisis. A landmark court ruling, a judge in Oklahoma has ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572 million for pushing doctors to prescribe opioids and downplay the risk of addiction. Actions the state said helped fuel the state's opioid crisis. Yes, we're talking about the company Johnson & Johnson, known for baby shampoo and other family-friendly products, which also has a pharmaceutical division, and Johnson & Johnson has denied any wrongdoing. It calls the judge's decision flawed and will appeal the ruling. Chris Cuomo joins us now with more on this and a preview of what's coming up on Cuomo Primetime. Counsel, let me ask you this. Johnson & Johnson says that their product is government approved and FDA regulated. So why then are they being charged and forced to pay a fine over it? Well, there are two answers uh, to that. The answer, in fact, is because the judge found in Oklahoma they violated the state nuisance law. And uh, there's a very interesting reckoning uh, of it. Obviously, the judge accepted the attorney general, the state's case uh, that nuisance law doesn't have to just be in the confines of messing with our property, my dog messing around in your garden, creating a nuisance uh, of trespass in one way or another, that this can qualify, too, because it's affecting uh, people's enjoyment of life. The other reason is, if you read the facts in here and the findings, how they sold and marketed the drugs and convincing doctors that what they think is addiction really isn't, and they need to prescribe more in those cases, not less. And it's really a solicitation. Mm -hmm. It's really a fraud. uh, But those are harder cases to make. So the question then becomes, will it stick? We've never seen a case like this. And if it sticks, John, and companies can be held responsible for their role in addiction, things could change. Quickly, what do you have coming up on Cuomo Primetime? We're going to go big on this. Um, because I think it's really important. The piece of the responsibility of the companies has always been big. We also have Matt Schlapp, leading conservative voice. Uh, We'll be getting after it with him about the state of play on the left, on the right, and we'll be talking about the polls on the left. Can't believe Biden's in a three-way tie. All right, Chris Cuomo, counselor, thank you very much. See you in a few minutes. Up next, a new aerial view of the devastation from the fires in the Amazon rainforest. We'll get an update on the fire fright from CNN's Nick Payton Walsh. Global money being pledged to help those affected by huge wildfires burning in Brazil's Amazon rainforest. The G7 nations will set up a $20 million emergency fund. And the Environmental Foundation, created in part by actor Leonardo DiCaprio, has pledged $5 million. Meanwhile, CNN's Nick Payton Walsh's team recorded this video during an aerial tour of the fire. Brazilian officials say every minute the flames destroy one and a half soccer fields. Nick Payton Walsh joins us now with the very latest. 
So, Nick, you've seen how bad it is. How can anyone begin to tackle this? Well, it is extraordinary. I mean, often you can't see the problem because of how dense the smoke is. And we flow over areas that we can only really reach by getting over them in a plane. There are no roads connecting them. So this operation, when it gets underway and we see Brazilian military cargo planes above us, is going to have to be enormous or perhaps depend on some kind of natural response like massive, consistent mm. rain. There's been drops of it here. And the supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro have tried to suggest on social media that, that might be tackling the problem, but it simply won't. For 43,000 troops here will need massive logistical support. Brazil's been willing to accept Israeli help, but it seems to be shunning the 20 million or so that the world's seven richest nations managed to scramble together, a pretty pitiful sum. Not sure that'd even be allowed into the country. John? Shunning the 20 million. They don't want the 20 million? seems that way. He didn't specifically say that, but in a, in a speech he gave to journalists, he was very angry at the media and also at President Emmanuel Macron, with whom he'd been in a bit of a spat all day ever since the Brazilian president commented on an offensive meme about the French president's wife. And then the French president said they hoped eventually Brazil would get a president who was up to the job. So no real love between uh, Brasilia and Paris. The question really moving forwards is whether that stops Brazil from letting people in who might help them tackle the fires. You get a slight sense maybe Brazil's trying to downplay the problem at this point, but it also plays to Bolsonaro's base, John. These pictures really are stunning and terrifying in their own way, Nick. Why are the fires so bad right now? Some say it is uh, particularly bad because of the dry season, um, but most activists and most scientists who've looked at this problem outside of Brazilian government circles say very clearly this is down to deforestation. This is because so much land has been cleared, so much license has been given to farmers to create agricultural land from the forest by the Bolsonaro government's lax policy towards the Amazon, viewing it as a resource to make people rich, that in fact that's dried the ground out, kept less moisture in it and made it more susceptible to fires if they occur. And also others say, too, fires are the first step in deforestation. You burn the land, then you clear it, then you put cattle on it, then you make your money and you sell your beef. So there's a process happening here which could permanently damage the ecosystem of the Amazon. We all depend on it for our oxygen. The question is, is it nearing a tipping point where the dryness caused by deforestation and fires becomes irrevocable and causes a sort of self-fulfilling cycle of damage here, more fires every single year? We just don't know, John, but it's perilously close. All right, Nick Payton Walsh, thank you so much for being there and showing us what's going on. The news continues now, so I'll hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime. 